This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Our next story, well, it's one about service, love, and sacrifice. Let's follow Eileen Hall's incredible journey across Europe as she searches for her husband in the middle of World War II. Eileen was a member in the Women's Army Corps, or WAC. We got together with Eileen and her daughter Sherry, who both live in Canton, Ohio. Here's Eileen. I'm from Canton, Ohio. I was born in 10, 11, 23, and my mother and dad had a restaurant in downtown Canton, and we had a hotel up above the restaurant, and that's where I was raised. We lived right across the street from McKinley High School, so all I had to do was walk to, for high school was walk across the street and go to school. After my mother made it to my high school graduation, and shortly after that, she passed on, and my dad remarried, and I felt very uncomfortable at home with a different mother, really. And you were working at? Kempkin Roller Bearing Company, so it's a long time. That's 75 years ago, you know, so I'm trying to remember. A lot of it I'll never forget, but, uh, and there I met a girl and we became friends and we worked in the stationary supply office. And uh, she had a boyfriend from Galleon, Ohio, and every time he came up to see her, he brought his brother. So she said, do you think you'd mind dating his brother if he brings him up? And I said, oh no. Well, that was it, because we just melded together and it's just worked out so. But he was being drafted like all the, that he was going to be sent to Oklahoma. So um, after my dad remarried, I just didn't feel comfortable at home. So I said, I think I'll, I always wanted to go to California. So I said, I think I'll go to California because I've always wanted to go there. So I boarded a train and it stopped in Oklahoma. And I thought, well, I'll just see, you know, him while I'm here. So that's as far as I got. <laughs> we got married. <laughs> After I was there a few days, we had to go through blood tests, and it was really, you know. So and we were married in a parson's office. And then it wasn't long after that that he was sent overseas. So I thought, well... Since I'm married to him, I'll go back home and see what I can do, you know. So I went back home and I decided to enlist in the service. So I went in downtown Canton where they had their recruiting office and told them I would like to join the Army. Well, the Navy I really wanted, but you couldn't get in that one until later. So um, I decided I'd get in the Army if I could. So even though I was married, I had to get my dad's consent. Because of my age, I couldn't do it unless I had my parents' consent. So I went to where he worked and told him, and he said, well, if I don't do this, you'll do something else crazy. So he signed. He was a World War I veteran. So he signed, and I took it back. And after that, I uh, got into uh, basic training in Daytona Beach, Florida, 
from there I was uh, I volunteered they said as we were being interviewed the girls that had already volunteered said you'll be sorry <laughs> and so uh, but I volunteered for everything so I always got to pick of things that I wanted to do so I thought that was a good idea from there I was sent to Fort Oglethorpe Georgia for driver training and uh, I led a convoy through Georgia as one of our tryouts, you know, to see how we did. And so, uh, and then we had to uh, go in gas chambers and take off of the gas mask and stay for a few minutes and then go out and catch your breath again. <laughs> so, and then uh, we had to lay down and they fired shots over us, you know, to see how we'd react. And then we had uh, to go through other training, abandoning ship. We had to go, you know, to a top of the ship that would be and go down the sides. And a couple of the girls were just terrified of doing it. So I helped along with them. And then after that was all done, I was sent to Fort Lewis, Washington. And I was only there for a little while. The, the fellows, in the barracks, we're used to having women there, and boy, every time we'd walk out everywhere, shoo, there were guys walking with us, so. But anyway, I volunteered. They asked for volunteers to go overseas. So um, I volunteered, but there were too many, so I wasn't gonna get to go, but at the last minute, one gal dropped out, and so I took her place. And then it wasn't long after that that we were sent to Fort Dix, or New Jersey, and boarded the Queen Elizabeth and headed for France. So, it, on a ship that in peacetime would accommodate two people, there were 24 wax in one room, and, and then we went on and we landed at Glasgow, Scotland, in the Isle of Clyde. And there we were met with the Red Cross and the Salvation Army and they gave us food and until and they decided where we were going to go from there. And some of us boarded a train and headed for Sutton Coalfield, England. That's where I was going to be stationed for a while. And we've been listening to Eileen Hall's journey to find her husband in the middle of World War II. A great backstory. I can't wait to hear more. Sure, you can't either. Again, send your stories like this to OurAmericanNetwork.org. There are so many great stories to be told by you, the listeners. And we look forward to hearing more from you. When we come back, more of Eileen Hall's story here on Our American Stories. Get more at OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with Eileen Hall's story. And my goodness, she goes from a small town in the Midwest, a small town in Ohio. She boards a train to head to California, stops in Oklahoma to see her boyfriend. Well, she doesn't continue the trip. She gets married. He gets shipped off. And what an adventurer this lady was, my goodness, and so many other women who served in the war. She wanted to be in the theater and volunteered for it. Let's pick up where we last left off. Some of us boarded a train and headed for Sutton Coalfield, England. That's where I was going to be stationed for a while. So um, that's where I had to drive a Jeep. I, I went through the motor corps, so I was allowed to drive a Jeep and up to a two-and-a-half-ton truck. So... I drove the, uh, everybody in Sutton Coalfield in England had to list if they had a room available for GIs because they didn't want the women staying in rooms, they wanted the men to be there. So that's what I did for a while and got them all done and and then uh, I was sent, I I drove a major there that uh, Four, four of us were drivers, and I, we all drove an officer. So I drove a major, so we were on call 24 hours a day for whatever reason they wanted us. So, but, uh, well, I had to drive in the fog so bad that I had to put my foot up. They drive on the left side on the curb, so I would know where I was going. And because of that, my left leg is, is not as big as my right one. It took that much, it froze, you know, and I had to go back to the barracks and they put me behind the bakery and so I could thaw out to my leg was so frozen from driving. So uh, we had gone through many air raids at night and and one of the gals said, if I'm going to get killed, I'm going to do it right here. And so the rest of us decided we'd stay together. So that was it, <laughs> because there were nightly air raids, you know. So after I left England, I went to France and was with the post office there as a driver. So every morning I'd drive into Paris, and you could there were, the streets were empty except for people going through garbage cans trying to get something to eat, people and dogs, and that's something I'll never forget. And as I drove to the post office that I was be at, just as I drove in, something cracked on the uh, steering wheel, and I couldn't steer it, but I was already there, so I was, I felt that was a blessing, because if I had done that out in the, you know, out on the streets, it would have been something else. I have faith, and I, I just felt I'd be protected, whatever I did, because I, if I volunteered for something, I felt that that's what I should do. So I just had a different life than some of the other whacks. But <laughs> the Battle of the Bulge was going on then, and they were bringing the wounded into the uh, hospital in Paris. And uh, our commanding officer was called from from the hospital and asked to send some wax down to help. The wounded were coming in so fast. So um, our our commanding officer 
called me and said, you know, going to take some wax to the hospital. So I got my ton and a half truck and loaded it with wax and drove into the hospital in front of the hospital and walked in and here the GIs are all laying on the floor and you could just walk sideways. And so they, we would kneel down and talk to them and take, you know, we all went and talked to each one and asked what, where they were from and just got them calmed down before and then they finally found room for them all. So, but when I had time off, I was allowed to take the Jeep and I became acquainted with two fellows from Iowa. And one was, uh, had his uh, left leg amputated below his knees, so he was gonna be sent home. And he said he hated to see, go home without seeing Paris. And I said, well, I'll see what I can do. So I went to my commanding officer, told her to the store, and she says, you take a Jeep and show him wherever you want to go. So where there were two whacks in the back and me driving and him sit beside me and I took him all over Paris. So he was, you know, excited about that. And uh, we kept in touch for years after I got home, so. I got a letter from my husband saying he was going to be sent to the CBI, that's the China-Burma. And I thought, and I started crying, and the officer was below me, and she came up and wanted to know why I was crying, and I said, well, my husband's going to be sent to the CB area. And I said, I, I'd probably never see him again, and she said, I'll see what I can do. So she got me orders attached to Mark Clark's but he, he never knew I was part of his service. So, but that got me to an early airport and asked, you know, if anybody was going to Paris. And there, there was a plane just out there that was going to be going to Italy. And I told my story to the guy at the desk. And so he said, that plane right there, you can get on. So they put down the Bombay doors and I walked out and and they, one on one side and one on the other, lifted me up and put it in where the gun turret is. And that's how I rode from there to, to Italy. And I got off of the plane and I was standing on the road and I didn't realize right in front of me was the Tower of Pisa because I didn't realize it was that big, you know. And so I walked out and I started hitchhiking. And along came a British guy in a truck with three uh, soldiers in the back and one was they were attending to one and I said what happened she said he got hurt but not by fire I don't know exactly how he got hurt and they're going into Rome so uh, they stopped for water and the driver of the truck had to come back and stand in front of me so I could lean to the back because the people just came from everywhere and they wanted to touch me and you know and I I didn't know what to do so they looked out for me and then we left and went on to Rome to the Red Cross there and they put me up for the night the next morning was a Sunday so it was church so I went down and went to church and after a little while before church started, a fellow sat down beside me and he looked at my patch. He says, you're not from around here, are you? And I said, no, I, and I told him my story. He said, I'll see what I can do. So the next day he had gotten permission from his officer and he was able to take me from Rome to Milano. 
and uh, on the way it started to rain and the fellow didn't know how to do the, the tops of the Jeep so I showed him how to do that and he uh, took me up and my husband was waiting for me waiting there so we had our honeymoon on Lake Como and I had our own villa attached to a regular one which is owned now by George Clooney and I'm sure George Clooney doesn't know it but I'm going to write a letter to him sometime if he ever gets it the Villa Diaz Esti yeah so yeah that was the Fifth Army Rest Camp so we left from La Harve on the E.B. Alexander headed for the United States as we pulled into New York Harbor all the lights came on and they took us off the boat and fed us the best Thanksgiving dinner we ever had. <laughs> so, and from there, we had to go to Fort Dix to get released from the Army. And then I boarded a train for Canton, Ohio. And when I got to Canton, there they were, my husband and my, my dad, and just welcomed me home. He got home seven days before I did. But... Other than that, why, I think my experience was something that not too many people have the opportunity to experience. So that's my love story. <laughs> and I love to tell it. <laughs> so, and thanks for the opportunity to tell it. So that's it. And that's it. And thanks for the opportunity to let us tell it. Eileen, and what a beautiful story about so many things, particularly just a sheer sense of adventure and independence. I think about the coddling of 17, 18, and 19-year-olds today, and this lady and her husband off to Europe to fight Nazis, searching for each other, learning how to drive trucks and tanks, supply lines to defeat one of the world's worst enemies in history without reservation and with a sense of joy afterwards my goodness she looks back at this as perhaps the most important and best time of her life imagine meeting up with a husband in lake como and having your wedding celebration there your honeymoon there and then coming back to new york harbor and having as she put it the best thanksgiving meal ever eileen hall's journey to find her husband in the middle of world war ii her story here on our american stories continue with our American stories and up next the story of Richard Montanez originally from Mexico Richard's family moved to California where he grew up doing manual labor his whole life had been spent below the poverty line but one day well everything changed when he got a job as a janitor but of all places Frito-Lay faith brings us the rest of the story Richard Montanez wrote a book titled A Boy, a Burrito, and a Cookie. From janitor to executive, Montanez was working as a janitor for Frito-Lay in the 80s. But now, he is worth millions. 
In his book, he talks about how fear is what holds most people back. His success did not come from his great education or from who he knew. In fact, he doesn't have a formal education at all. This is the story of how a man went from a janitor to a millionaire. What was life like growing up for Richard Montanez? I was a, a young boy during the civil rights movement of the 60s. Now, what I like to tell people is that I wasn't old enough to have an impact on the movement, but I was old enough that the movement had an impact on me. And here's how the story goes. We're in a one-room one apartment, and my mom's getting me ready for school because I was being bused from my school to an all-English-speaking school across town. And I remember I'm crying because I don't want to go to school. My mom says, why not? And I said, because everybody speaks English. You know, it's not fair. People forget is that, you know, during my days, there were no bilingual classes. If, if, if you wanted your license, you needed to know English. It was, it, was, it was pretty difficult. It was different. It was really different. And um, so my uncle takes me to the corner, and uh, here comes the yellow bus. And then there goes the yellow bus. So I'm kind of happy and telling my uncle, I guess they're not going to stop for us. There was about 10 of us waiting. Then all of a sudden we hear this big pop and bang and we see this green bus coming up the hill smoking and um, that's the bus that uh, they sent for us. And I remember I told my uncle, it's, it's like it happened yesterday. That's why I say sometimes you got to go back, you know, so you can catch some of those wisdom and some of the things that happened to you. So. Uh, I'm telling my uncle, why can't I ride the yellow bus like the other kids? And he has no explanation. I don't know. This is the bus that they sent for you. It wasn't until I was an adult that I finally realized why they sent that green bus. And it was society at the time saying that this group of children, this group of 10, they're not good enough to ride the yellow bus. Let's put them on a green bus, parade them across town so that the whole town can see that because of who they are, they're not good enough to ride. And, and as, a, as a young boy, that, uh, I took that on because you have to understand, I didn't know what diversity was. I didn't know what discrimination was. I didn't know what race was. But one thing that I did know, and I knew my color. So for me, it was like, oh, dark skin is kind of like a second class citizen. That's all I knew. So, oh. Okay, so I began to take that on. I'm not good enough for the yellow bus. So we get to school. I don't understand the word the teacher's saying, uh, but I always said this, that there's one sound that's international, that every child knows that sound. That is the recess or the lunch bell. It was uh, lunchtime, so it was all a relief. And, you know, my group, we got our lunches, and, you know, we sat outside, and uh, I pulled my lunch out. And I was getting ready to take a bite, and I put it back. I put it back because everybody in that whole uh, playground was staring at me. And the reason they were staring at me, because it was a burrito. And what people need to understand that this was 1963, the world hadn't seen a burrito yet. You know, contrary to popular belief, Taco Bell didn't introduce the burrito to the world, me and my mom did. But the fact is, I was embarrassed. So I went home and I told my mom in Spanish, I said, you know, make me a bologna sandwich and a cupcake like the other kids, because I don't want to be different. And I told my mom, why do I have to ride the green bus? Why do I have to be this color? Why do I have to speak this language? Why do I have to eat this food? I want to fit in like everyone else. But my mom, I've always said she's a marketing genius. She said, no, this is who you are. And that was Wednesday when I was bused to that school. So Wednesday was my burrito nightmare. 
Thursday, she made me two burritos. So I went to school, shared a burrito with a friend on Thursday. Friday, I was selling burritos for 25 cents a piece. That's when I realized that even at a young age that, you know what, maybe, just maybe there is something special about different, being different. And I finally realized that none of us were created to fit in. We were all created to stand out. And I think that's what we need to teach our young people is quit trying to fit in because it's never going to happen because you weren't created to fit in. You were created to stand out. So for me, that became a revelation that led to a revolution of my life. I knew that, okay, I'm different, but it's okay. And uh, I really started to fall in love with my culture and who I was. His mom had an impact on how he saw himself. She refused to let him be ashamed of his culture, whether that be the color of his skin or his food. But there are other people in his family that impacted him as well, especially when it came to work ethic, even when it meant the type of janitor he would be at Frito-Lay. So, you know, my mentors were my dad and uh, my grandfather. Now, they didn't mentor me in you know, academics or how to write a check. They had no bank accounts. What they mentored me in how to work hard, how to be the first one, uh, never to be on time, to be early. You know, I'd never been late. You know, I have this thing, I'd, ra I'd rather be, you know, an hour early than five minutes late. Well, I, I gained that from them, but I didn't realize also another thing that that would separate me. Because when I, when I was first hired as a janitor, um, I remember I went and told my grandfather and my dad at the same time, and both of them said, when you mop that floor, you make sure that it shines, that people will know that a Montanez mopped it. Then my dad said, you listen to your grandfather. When, that, when you mop that floor, let people know that a Montanez. So I took that on. I really believed that, you know, uh, in my heart, I was going to be the best janitor that Frito-Lay ever had. I, I took out the trash, I mopped the floors, but I saw that I had an influence as a janitor. People were smiling because they'd walk into the break room and it smelled fresh. They'd walk, something like, well, I can make people smile just by working hard. And, and I remember, because uh, there's always the doubters, you know, and I like to tell young people, you know, stay away from the haters, you know. And people said, well, what do you do? So I'm the janitor. Oh, you're, the, you're just the janitor? And I said, you know what? There's no such thing as just a janitor. There's no such thing as just a waiter. There's no such thing as, a, there's no such thing as just. When you believe in your heart that you're going to be the best. And I believed in my heart. And people were taking that. And I, that floor shine, You know, and, uh, and, I, and, and I've said this before. You know, there, there are so many statements out there that are incorrect. And, and one of them is I'd like to correct. And the statement is that... Uh, you get promoted by who you know. And that's not true. You get pr promoted by who knows you, who knows of you, who knows your work ethics, who knows that they can trust you. you. You could say you know the CEO of the company, but if he doesn't know you, you'll never get that opportunity. See, I didn't realize that. I was just being me. I just want, I was just happy. I just wanted, you know, everything that I could get out of life in my area. So when the time did come when they were having problems, you know, I, I started to learn uh, my whole industry, uh, whether it was my job or not, you know, I, I would uh, hang out with the, the guy that ran the machines. I would hang out with the guy that, that cooked the product, and I'd say, teach me this, and I was just having fun. And you've been listening to Richard Montanez and his story, and what a story it is. 
and what a lucky man he was and is to have a dad and a granddad who taught him to work hard and that no job was beneath any man. The dignity of work, well, it speaks for itself. Make sure people know Amantanez mopped that floor and make that floor shine. And the pride of work, my goodness, reminds me of the great street sweeper speech by Martin Luther King. By the way, we did an entire segment on it. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Type Martin Luther King and street sweeper speech. When we come back, more of this remarkable voice, Richard Montanez, his story, his family story, and overcoming obstacles here on Our American Story. Turn to our American stories, and we've been listening to the story of Richard Montanez, who went from janitor to millionaire. And let's return to Faith and the rest of this story. Montanez was both curious and a hard worker. Why was it that he was never afraid? Even as a child, he was taking chances. A lot of it was being naive. A lot of it was not knowing to play rules. You know, if you don't know the you just play the way you think you can. But, uh, you know, every Tuesday they had uh, after-school reading programs. And uh, one was here for the Latino kids and one for the non-Latino. So you, you, I would get in every Tuesday in the line that I was told to get in. And uh, one day I broke ranks. And I got in the white line. And you should have seen my own line, intentionally or unintentionally. They were saying, Ricardo, Tas loco. Richard, you're crazy. This is our line. And when I got in this line, I was really... Uh, I had a lot of fear because all the white kids turned around and was like, hey, you, you know, they were saying what they were taught. Their line's over there. Nothing, nothing me, just like, hey, you know, you're in the wrong line. Kind of, fr- you know, how kids do it. And then I thought, well, you know what? I wonder if I can pass for being white. There was two beautiful ladies up there in the trailer. I remember blonde, blue eyes. And I kept thinking, are they going to notice that I'm not white? And really, I had, I had a fear that was unbelievable. But I had something inside of me that was greater than that fear. And when my friends were saying, what are you doing? I, I just looked at them and I whispered in a loud way, said, they have cookies inside. I'm going to get us some cookies. And the truth is, why did I get in that line? Why did I? Because sometimes you got to break ranks. You got to get out of that line you were told to get in. Because I was hungry. And I knew they had, that's all. I just wanted a cookie. I was hungry. And as much fear as I had, my hunger was greater than my fear. And that's why I tell people today, if you're hungry for that promotion, if you're hungry for that degree, if you're hungry to run for an office, fear will leave. And when I got up there, guess what those two ladies did? They filled my pockets with cookies. Now, there's two morals of that story. One is hunger is the antidote to fear. If you're hungry, you'll never fear again. The other part of that story is that Everyone needs to understand, and I mean everyone needs to understand that there's a cookie that's been baked just for you. Your job is to get out of that line that you were told to get into and get into the cookie line. For many of us, it means to get out of the uneducated line into the educated, the poverty line into the prosperity line. 
And uh, that's why I tell people, that's why uh, my success has been beyond my wildest dreams. I really didn't know any better. All I had was I'm hungry. So how did he become an executive? By the mid-1980s, Frito-Lay was struggling. As a way to boost morale, then-CEO Roger Enrico recorded a video message and disseminated it to the company's 300,000 employees. Um, he, he told everyone there across the country, actually across the world, 300, I think 300,000-plus employees at the time, um, we want all of you to act like owners. And you got to understand, that was such a bold statement because... That was during when corporate America was a command and control. Corporate America had not yet heard the word empowerment, let alone individuals. So he was basically saying, I empower you to act like an owner. Here's another thought for me was, wow, is he telling the truth? Is he, is, he's inviting the janitor to act like an owner? And so many people just, it just went over. I said, don't you, didn't you hear what he just said? He said, we could all act like owners. So I, I went into action. I started, you know, researching my company. And, and then I asked the salesman if I could go with him on a weekend. I said, I'll load your truck up. So I went to the stores with him and I loaded the Frito-Lay products and just had a great learning the business, whatever I could. And I always say, you know, all you need is, as I said it earlier, all you need is one revelation. One revelation will lead to a revolution in your life. And what is a revelation? It's simply this. It's something that was there all along. It's just been unveiled. I was looking, and this was many, many years ago, and I saw it. I saw And here's what I saw. I saw no products that were catering to Latinos or to the person who loves spices. It's all pretty much, you know, salt and maybe barbecue flavored. Um, no one was selling, you know, spicy flavored or anything hot. So I'm like, that was it. But I remember I went home and I sat in our, on our porch and we have the old-fashioned um, um, of steps, you know, concrete. So I'm sitting there and in my neighborhood, in a lot of Latino neighborhoods like mine that I grew up in, we have something that is called the uh, Elote Man. It's a vendor. It's a corn, called the Corn Man. And he sells uh, uh, corn on a stick and he puts mayonnaise, butter, cheese, however you want it, lime, chili. And uh, remember I whistled and I said, let me have two, you know one for my son here and I said yeah with everything of course so I'm eating and I'm thinking what could I do what could I create and then I looked at that and it looked just like a Cheeto and it's just like like that the, what if I put chili on a Cheeto so I went to work you know and I actually made up my own season you know that and put it on an unseasoned Cheeto my wife took some to work I took some to work and everybody fell in love with it and you know next thing you know I, I, I called the CEO Richard Montanez, the janitor, called the CEO of Frito-Lay. So I knew that I was different because of my burrito day. I also had courage because I was hungry from my cookie day. So being innovative and full of courage, plus I was naive, I didn't know you weren't supposed to call the CEO. Well, you know, let's find out if he's telling the truth. So I call up and his... Uh, executive assistant was just that she was an executive assistant because she saw it right away and she started saying what division do you do you run because he's a ceo only another president or vice president would call him i said no i work in california like the general manager of california no i work at the rancho cucamonga plant she's like you're the plant director I said no she goes, what are you i'm the janitor so hang on ceo gets on 
you know, 10 minutes later, he says, uh, I'll be there in two weeks. And uh, hung up the phone. And like I've always said, you know, uh, there's always somebody in the room that will steal your, try to steal your, well, here comes the plan. See, I really didn't know what I'd done. Montanez had crossed a social boundary that his plant manager saw as unacceptable. Here he comes, and he's so upset. And I don't understand what he's upset. He just said, do you realize what you've done? The CEO, he's coming, and he's bringing everybody with him to hear you. He goes, you do the presentation. I've never done a presentation. I wouldn't even know where to start. Uh, but I remember, you know, um, I'm married to a brilliant woman. You know, I've, I've always said that, you know, every, when you're in trouble, you know, go to the wife, go to the mom, go to the grandma. The woman has the answer. At the time when he was told he had to give the presentation, he was 26 and barely knew how to read or write. In fact, his wife filled out the application for Frito-Lay. And then again, his wife helped him put together his marketing plan. After bumbling through the presentation, the CEO stood up and said, put the mop away, you are coming with us. Six months later, Flamin' Hot Cheetos were being tested in small Latino markets in East Los Angeles. If things didn't work out, Montanez would be back mopping the floor. After some test runs in 1992, Flamin' Hot Cheetos were nationally released. Today, Flamin' Hot Cheetos are one of Frito-Lay's hottest-selling commodities, a multi-billion dollar snack. Over a 35-year career, Richard Montanez, the former janitor, rose through the ranks, and he is now the vice president of multicultural sales for PepsiCo America, the holding company of Frito-Lay. But more than that, Montanez has chosen to give back to the community with scholarships, food drives, and clothing drives. He never wants to forget where he came from. He still lives in Rancho Cucamonga with his family, where they serve the community together. Well, you know, when, when, when we have an event, again, what makes me proud is that it's, it's my three sons, uh, five grandkids, my wife, two daughter-in-laws, and a handful of friends. And 5,000 people show up at my events. We typically, we feed everybody lunch. We have a big stage, we have a sound system, we have a warehouse full of toys. We, I mean, um, we give every family a box of groceries. And what I'm proud about is that, because again, I know what it is to be hungry. The box of groceries is enough groceries to feed a family of four for a week. So when you open my groceries, there's not going to be a, a can that has no label on it. I said, I've said this, if it's not good enough for my kids, then I'm not going to give it to those kids. It's got to be just as, if sometimes even better. So when we're on stage and my grandkids, uh, that's our legacy, is I know when I look in the mirror that my success is for a reason. And that reason, it, with success comes a responsibility. And that responsibility is to your fellow man. And how, you know, I, I tell people, other people who've been financially successful, how big does your house have to be before you give back? But again, I think other executives, other people who've been very, very fortunate need to understand. And, and I think a lot of them are coming around. They realize when they look at their bank account, there's a reason. There's there's that much in there is, you know, part of it is to give it away. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And what a story. And we've been listening to Richard Montanez, 
One revelation, he said, can lead to a revolution. And what a revolution. Fear, he kept on saying, holds most people back. And it's so true. Richard Montanez's story here on Our American Stories. And if you know a Richard Montanez story near you, and they're all over this country, I love that he said that most success doesn't come from family connections because it's so true in this country. It's a bunch of rubbish. And the fact of the matter is anyone can make it in this country. And Richard's life story is testament to that. Again, Richard Montanez's story, and we're looking for stories like it. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Your stories are some of our favorites. And today we have a feature from one of our regular contributors, Stephen Rosiniak. This piece is titled, An Hour to Chat. And to read about the backstory of this story, please visit stephenrosiniak.com. Here's Stephen sharing this story. Can you imagine? If only it were possible. If only it were true. A photo of a bench on a grassy hill overlooking a place where an ocean's waves are succumbing upon a distant sandy shoreline showed up today in my email inbox with a simple, and yet thought-provoking question. If you could sit here and chat for one hour with anyone, past or present, who would it be? Immediately, a plethora of possibilities began flooding my thoughts. As an unabashed history buff, my mind immediately went into overdrive as the faces of countless historical figures suddenly appeared in my mind's eye all of them vying for what I selfishly saw as a coveted chance for someone of historical significance to spend an hour sitting on this bench and chatting with me. I imagined questioning any one of them about their life, about their successes and failures, about their choices that they had made that ultimately led to their fame, their fortune, or in some cases, their downfall. I considered briefly the potential picks that others might have chosen as well, and I suspect their answers would certainly have included the rich and the famous. Actors, rock stars, revered religious icons, presidents, or famous sports heroes, perhaps the likes of John Wayne, John Lennon, John the Baptist, John Adams, or maybe even pitching great Tommy John, each of whom a worthy selection in their own right, but in the end, none of them would have been my choice. If the idea posed by this question were truly plausible, and if, by chance, it was offered me, admittedly, I would have the audacity to request a small caveat before making my selection. 
I would immediately request permission to double my allowed allotment. I would ask a waiver be granted, permitting me two choices, as opposed to the originally offered one. I would defend my request by noting that my two choices had been one half of a team for more years than even I have existed, and that together, and forever, they are in fact one. If only it were possible, if only it were true, if offered the opportunity to sit on this bench and chat for one hour with anyone I would choose my parents. It's been far too long. And besides, I miss them. We lost Dad unexpectedly one night several years ago. And 12 years later, Mom joined him after doing battle with a foe for which, try as she did, she simply could not defeat. If I were granted this hour... I would probably ask permission for some time to prepare. There are a few things that I would need to know, like when would we be having our chat? Or where exactly is this bench anyway? Would I be allowed to bring my parents a gift? Maybe some current family photos? Or could we share a couple cups of coffee? Just like we used to. I'm sure that they would like that. One hour would clearly not be enough time to catch the folks up on all of our recent family doings, and so maybe it would be prudent of me to prepare in advance a list of topics for us to discuss, thereby initiating a strategy to best utilize the limited amount of time allotted our chat. Or then again, maybe not. Perhaps it would be best to forego the preparation and planning and simply arrive at the bench at the appointed hour, without my photos, without my pre-planned questions, bringing with me nothing more than my love and my gratitude for being gifted with one more hour to spend with mom and dad. If I were granted this time to chat, chances are, that as our bench reunion commenced, I would probably just hug them, just hold them close, incredibly thankful for the opportunity to once again do so. Of course, I would tell them how much I love them and how much I miss them. But beyond that, I don't know what else I would say. I do know that if nothing more were said, that would be okay too as I would be perfectly content for having been blessed with our extra time together. If offered the opportunity to sit on this bench and chat for one hour with anyone, I would choose my parents. But to be honest, I suspect a reunion like this will never take place. My faith, however, reassures me that one day we will indeed be reunited. Maybe not on this bench, but instead, when I too have been called home to heaven. It's going to be a joyous reunion, of this I'm sure. And who knows, maybe we will still share a couple cups of coffee together, just like we used to. I'm sure that they'd like that. 
I know I will. And a special thanks to Stephen Rasiniak, and you can hear more of the backstory on that beautiful story at stephenrasiniak.com. And I would only add this, forego the planning, yes, bring the gratitude, yes, bring the love, yes, but bring the pictures too. I know I had this similar question asked about three months ago with some friends, and I said it would be my mom, and they thought, oh, how saccharine. But I'd love to just share with my mom, who was my best friend, the pictures of Reagan. That's what I'd want to do. She'd ask, how's our little girl doing? So bring the photos. And by the way, we'd love to hear your stories about your parents for Mother's Day and Father's Day. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Stephen Rasiniak's Hour to Chat, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and we now bring you the story of an extraordinary woman who was an inspiration not only for women of color but an inspiration to all who knew her name Dr. Olivia Hooker here's Stacey Edwards with her story 10 years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery Alabama bus and 18 years before Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I have a dream speech Olivia Hooker became the first African-American woman to join the U.S. Coast Guard. 1945, I joined. March the 9th was the day we went on duty. We had been campaigning for that privilege, but nobody joined. I kept watching the newspapers, and I thought to campaign for certain civil rights and then not use them, to me... Is very futile, and somebody ought to join up after they campaign. Born in Muskegee, Oklahoma, Olivia was just seven years old when her house was ransacked and burned by members of the KKK during the Tulsa race riots of 1921, while her and her three siblings hid under a table. There were times when I didn't know about prejudice because the only people that I had seen who were not African-American were people who wanted to sell things to my father. And they brought presents for the children and listened to my sister play Bach and all kinds of things to show how interested they were. So I was totally surprised when the disaster happened wasn't a riot. We were really the victims. But it took 80 years before we got a, an apology from the mayor of Tulsa. And they admitted that we were the victims. Of course, we got no monetary uh, reimbursement, but at least they apologized after 80 years. After the riots, her family moved to Columbus, Ohio, where she earned her Bachelor of Arts in 1937 from Ohio State University. While at OSU, she joined the Delta Sigma Theta sorority, where she advocated for African-American women to be admitted to the U.S. Navy. You see, there were no uh, people of our race in the Navy, not no girls. We had been campaigning for that 
privilege, but nobody joined. I kept watching the newspapers, and I thought to campaign for certain civil rights and then not use them, to me, is very futile, and somebody ought to join up after they campaign. So I thought, well, if I go and I survive, maybe someone else will come. Although I had applied for the Navy, and they kept writing back saying, there is a technicality. They didn't tell me what the technicality was. So I said, well, let me try the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard recruiter was just so welcoming. She wanted to be the first one to enroll the African-American. Miss Hooker enlisted with the U.S. Coast Guard in February 1945. On March 9th, she went to basic training in Brooklyn, New York. When they told us to go to basic training, I took a trunk with all my luxuries in it. I didn't know. The seven girls, other girls that went when I went, all had duffel bags. Everything was new to me. They get you up at five o'clock in the morning and you do exercises for an hour before you went to breakfast. And then, of course, you had to polish your floor, even though it didn't need polishing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, they thought of chores for you. We went to Manhattan Beach Training Station and we stayed there six and nine, 15 weeks, I think. And then when I graduated from Yeoman School, I was sent to Boston. The head of the Yeoman School, Lieutenant Isley, had written to all of the Coast Guard stations. There were 11 districts, and the only one who answered yes, they would take an African-American, was Admiral Derby in Boston. While in Boston, Olivia earned the rank of Yeoman Second Class in the Coast Guard Women's Reserve, where she served until her unit was disbanded in 1946. By 1947, after receiving her master's, Hooker moved upstate to work in the mental health department of a women's correctional facility. Many women in this facility were considered to have severe learning disabilities by staff. Hooker felt they were more capable than given credit and re-evaluated them and helped the women to pursue better education and jobs, a passion she inherited from her mother. My mother was a real suffragist. I mean, she was a campaigner for the women's vote. And uh, so I guess I inherited some of that. And I want to see equal pay for equal positions. And naturally, I'm trying to vote for people who believe that equal pay for equal positions should be the right of every person. By 1961, Olivia Hooker became Dr. Olivia Hooker when she earned her Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Rochester. In 1963, she joined Fordham University as a senior clinical lecturer. Eventually, she served as an associate professor until 1985, but it was her experience in the U.S. Coast Guard where Dr. Hooker realized her full potential. I didn't know many people 
that were not of my hue. And it was good for me to mix with other people and find out, you know, how they thought and what they were like. It taught me a lot about order and uh, priorities. But I would like to see more of us realizing, you know, that our country needs us. And I'd like to see more uh, girls consider spending some time in the military if they don't have a job at all and they're, they have ambition and they don't know what heights they might reach. It's really nice to have people with different points of view and different kinds of upbringing and uh, the world would really prosper from more of that. After retiring at the age of 87, she joined the U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary at the age of 95. She received a presidential citation in 2011 and was inducted into the New York State Senate Veterans Hall of Fame. On November 21, 2018, she died of natural causes in her home in White Plains, New York, at the age of 103. Although she was a practicing Methodist, Dr. Olivia Hooker found inspiration in the story of St. Francis. St. Francis was a terrible boy. I mean, he did everything wrong to his family. And so if St. Francis could become St. Francis after all the things he did as a boy, I have faith that other people can change and can see the right path and not take the path that's traveled. My favorite hymn, one of them, is Have Thine Own Way, Lord, Have Thine Own Way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, peaceful and still. And I, I, I was just fond of that, thinking of the creator being the potter and I being the clay. <laughs> to me, that was important. For our American Stories, I'm Stacy Edwards. And great job on that, Stacy! And what a unique voice. And by the way, if you have suggestions for stories, send them to us. There's so much out there in the world and your collective wisdom, well, we can't match it. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. A link to some audio or video, anything at all, a story that you just saw in your local paper. Again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. Dr. Olivia Hooker's story here on Our American Story.
we continue here on Our American Stories. And this is a rule of law story, which takes us to Memphis, not far from where we broadcast in Oxford, Mississippi, to a liquor store owned by Doug and Mary Ketchum called Kimbrough Wine and Spirits. Their quest to own their own business is a horror story of sorts, as it was necessary for the Supreme Court of the United States to make a ruling as to whether or not this couple will be allowed to pursue their American dream. Mary and I met in Salt Lake City, Utah, shortly after uh, my wife passed away in 2009. Well, uh, Doug and I had a lot of similar friends. We kind of knew about each other. I knew who he was, but we'd never really talked or been close. After my wife passed away, she opened up her house for uh, our funeral memorial dinner and just got to know her then. That was actually really nice for me because I met all of Doug's family so when we finally did start dating and decided we liked each other and we're going to get married, I already knew everybody and they already knew me. And so it was, there was no, you know, nobody was scared of anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We got married and Mary was working as a telephone technician, as a uh, network technician. She used to climb telephone poles just to give you an idea how uh, cool she is. <laughs> so. First, when I would go to people's houses and I'd say, you know, I'm the telephone man, uh, it would be funny because you get this odd reaction from people. They'd sit and look at me for a minute. Their brain couldn't quite put it together. <laughs> we were in a position where she could take a little time off, and I have a handicapped daughter that was with a previous marriage. And when we got married, she says, I want to be here to take care of Stacy. So we moved Stacy in with us. Uh, Stacy is um, has cerebral palsy. She was born in 1984, and November of 1985, she suffered an, a drowning accident in my sister's swimming pool in Arizona, and that left her with severe uh, cerebral palsy. She is completely quadriplegic. She can't talk. She can't sit up by herself. She can't walk. Um, she can't do anything by herself uh, from the first. Uh, the first year after her accident, she was in a coma. It took her an entire year to come out of her coma. And I used to have to walk her to sleep outside. She couldn't fall asleep if she was in the house. So every night for three years, I would take her outside for a walk and walk her until she'd fall asleep. And usually it took about between a half hour to an hour. Didn't matter if it was raining or snowing or what was going on. She couldn't fall asleep unless she was outside. Um, but... After she slowly came out of her coma, she used to have a, a, a gastrostomy tube, a, a tube in her stomach that we had to feed her through. Um, as she slowly came out of her coma, she started. She had to relearn everything. She had to learn how to swallow, how to how to eat food, and things like that. So it was it was quite a process, and um, spent a lot of years uh, taking care of her and worrying about her. But she is um, she's an angel. She. Um, you know, it's just the, uh, the light of our lives. So having, having somebody uh, that was willing to take that on uh, and, and marry me knowing that um, I had a handicapped daughter that required so much attention and so much um, work to take care of, um, that's a pretty big deal to me. I, you know, I um, overwhelmed every day at you know, the amount of love that Mary has for her and how willing she was to take something on. I don't think that many people could do that. In my mind, that just makes her a rock star. 
we got married. We moved in. Um, we moved Stacy in with us, and Mary became a full-time uh, mom to a handicapped, handicapped daughter. She was so sweet, and I could see her just giving me the eye. Are you good enough for my dad? I said to Doug later, I said, she really needs to come and live with us because I can tell her mom's burned out and she needs a break and she's been taking care of her for a really long time. And I says, I don't, honestly, I don't know if I can marry you unless she comes and lives with us because I thought that she needed a little better care and I thought I could do that. So when she first came here, I had a little bit of a learning curve the first, I don't know, three months or so. But after that, it was really easy and it's pretty obvious now that she should be with us. But in 2015, Stacy caught a severe case of pneumonia, and um, we spent about a month and a half in the hospital, and the doctors told us that the air quality was so bad in, in Salt Lake City, especially during the wintertime, that we needed to find a better environment for Stacy, um, or they didn't expect that she was going to last more than about a year. So we started a search and started looking for um, some place to move that had cleaner air and cleaner water, um, some place that would uh, provide us with some kind of opportunity to um, own our own business and allow us to have a little more free time to spend with Stacy because we we don't know how long she's you know going to live. So we ran across an opportunity in Memphis, Tennessee, for uh, and found a liquor store that was for sale. We spent I don't know about six or eight months looking at it, negotiating with the previous owner about a sales price and trying to get all of our licensing and all that kind of stuff worked out. In June of 2016, we planned to move. We we had come to Memphis. We found a house that we liked, and we had made an offer on the business. Everything looked like it was going very well. The ABC board told us that all of our information looked fine. They were going to approve us for a license at the next hearing at the end of June. And we got our city license. And we got our city license in that at the same time, yeah. June comes and they called us, our attorneys called us and says, oh, the ABC board says they lost your paperwork. We're going to have to refile it. So we're going to have to push it out till the end of July. So in the meantime, we'd closed on our house here and uh, moved all of our furniture and things out. Thought, okay, it's just a month away. You know, we can, we can make it another month. So we packed, you know, we had everything packed up and we moved here and, end of July comes and our attorney calls us again and says uh, the ABC board said there's a problem and they're putting a hold on all licenses this month you're gonna have to wait till August we're great I knew something was wrong <laughs> yeah we knew I, something was up they were stalling we didn't know why so uh, August comes along and they said we put a hold on licenses we're not giving you a license and not only that um, we filed a lawsuit against you in court so the issue was, and we didn't know about this at the time, but the issue was they had a rule that said you had to be a resident for two years in order to get a license, but in order to renew the license, you had to have been a resident of Tennessee for 10 years, which effectively means that you could not get a license, a liquor license in Tennessee unless you'd been a resident for nine years. No one told us about that rule. Yeah, it took us probably six months to realize why we were getting sued. Yeah, we were completely in the dark had no idea why, no idea why we were being sued. And as Mary said, uh, has said numerous times, they could have just said no. <laughs> they didn't have to sue us. I thought right from the beginning, we shouldn't quit our job until we move. And when it came time to close on the house and we hadn't gotten our liquor license yet, I said, are you sure? 
Should, maybe we should postpone buying the house. And he goes, no, no, everything's going to be fine. They've already told me it's going to be great. And I said, okay. So we came, we flew out here. We signed on the house. We got, we packed up our house, delivered all the stuff here. And um, we flew back home and they said, well, we'll we're going to do it next month. So when Doug said, well, a month, I says, well, can you keep your job for another month? We'll just stay here so that we have an income because I just didn't want to lose that safety net. You know, I, I wanted to make sure we had some income. And he says, yeah, I'll stay here. So he stayed one more month. We stayed a month longer, actually two months longer than we thought that we were going to because they kept postponing us. And he said, you know, we got to go. We just, we got to go. So he did. He came out here in August all by himself with Stacy without a van. And that was before grocery stores delivered. And I would talk to him on the phone sometimes and I would think, oh my gosh, how is he doing this? And when we come back, we're going to continue with the story of Doug and Mary Ketchum. And what a family, what a father, and what a lady to step up and do what she did for this man's daughter. It is just there. We have a story by itself. And when we come back, what happens next you won't believe. The story of Doug and Mary Ketchum, a rule of law story, here on Our American Story. Return to the story of Doug and Mary Ketchum here on Our American Stories, a couple who had to fight all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court just to run their family business. We had uh, initially had negotiated uh, uh, an SBA loan with Wells Fargo, and it was you know guaranteed for a certain amount of time. But because of the lawsuit, um, we lost the SBA guarantee and. When we finally won in court, we had to go all the way back through um, the uh, authorization process to get a new loan. We, we lost our, our good interest rate, and because uh, of all the problems that we'd had, they thought it was a greater risk, so we had to take more money out of our retirement account, and we had to double the amount of down payment that we put down on the business. Um, so that was the money that we had allocated really for operating capital and to come in and do renovations and things like that. So uh, that put us in a, a tight spot financially also because we no longer had that, you know, couple hundred thousand dollar cushion to run the business with. Um, we had to put it as a down payment. So that's the other reason I had to really have a job is we didn't have much leeway after that. Um, we Now we got the business, but we've got a really limited amount of capital to run it with and we have to you know, be very careful how we spend our money and how much income and overhead we have. So Mary's the one who's handled that, and she has done an amazing job with it. We're not the kind of give up kind of people. We kind of people that kind of dig our heels in. So um, we dug our heels in and and uh, went to court. And it took us, I think, about a year. We won our case, and that was in federal court. And at that point, the state basically was required to give us a license. They still didn't want to. They didn't want to. We They stalled again. They stalled, and we we uh, 
uh, actually went to a hearing at the ABC board where the uh, opposing attorneys got up and said, we know that the federal judge has ruled that uh, this is illegal, that they can't withhold them a license, but you can do what you want. You don't have to give them a license if you don't want to. <laughs> and the, the uh, commissioner uh, asked his attorney, he says, tell me your opinion. If I don't give them a license, what's my um, liability here? And he says, well, you're breaking the law. You could go to jail. And he said, so you want me to break the law and risk going to jail by not giving them a license? And, and the attorney says, that's, that's your prerogative. That's exactly <laughs> so, what we think you should do. <laughs> yeah. So he says, I'm not doing that. So we were granted our license. Um, they told us they would send it to us, and we still never saw it. We had to get our attorney to call the state attorney general to go get the license. So there was just a lot of uh, reluctance on the part of the state to grant anybody from outside the state a license. So the Retailers Association decided they were going to fight it, um, took us to the Supreme Court. We felt like we had to have representation. And at that point, we had a, a, an attorney call my wife. His name was Michael Bendis, and he was out of Seattle, Washington, and is with a group called the Institute for Justice. He called her and, and told her, we heard about your lawsuit, and we have a vested interest in this case. They had fought a case in the Supreme Court in 2005 that they had won that was very similar based on uh, similar rulings and they wanted to make sure that that case stayed won and wanted to know if they could represent us pro bono and so Mary I started crying yeah <laughs> <laughs> well at first she called me she, she says there's somebody going to call you and he wants to take our case and they want to represent us pro bono and I'm like is this a joke because <laughs> nobody ever calls you and say, we want to go to court and we'll pay all the costs. But uh, the Institute for Justice was, uh, you know, we, we met with Michael Bendis. He flew from Seattle down here to meet with us to, to talk to us about our case and tell us what they do and how they do it. And they were phenomenal. Um, I can't say enough about the Institute for Justice and how, how great they were and, and what they did for us. They took the case on. They had an army of uh, attorneys working on our case. We went to D.C. and met the people in the uh, in the Virginia office up there. Um, there had to be at least 100 people that were involved working on our case. That's pretty Court. overwhelming it to was, walk into a room and see all those people that were behind the scenes that helped us that we had no idea. Yeah, it was, it was um, overwhelming, actually. Yeah. The, the Supreme Court case itself, we were able to fly to D.C. and go up and sit in the Supreme Court and listen to the, the arguments. And that was also a really amazing experience. Well, we were really lucky because we got to bring Stacy with us. Honestly, for me, that when we walked in there, it was kind of like being in church. It was very reverent. And uh, there was a lot of respect. That when those judges come out, I mean, you can just see everyone in there is... 100% focused on what they're saying, what's going on, trying to see the innuendos and the cues and the questions of everything. Um, it was really intense. We, we got to listen to a case before ours. When they did finally get around to talking about us, I just had this wow moment where I realized they're, some of the smartest people in our country are up there talking about me and what's going on with us. And in, in that moment, I just realized what a really big deal it was. I, before that, I just knew that we were treading water trying to 
you know, make, make a life for ourselves and take care of our daughter. But in that moment, and I, when I was looking at them, I was thinking, wow, this is going to affect the whole country. This is a big deal. Yeah, it, it is a big deal. We had one of the attorneys sit with us and talk to us about the process and what was going on. If we had questions about what the judges were asking, um, you know, we could we could whisper to her and, and she'd explain it to us. Uh, but the whole thing was was really phenomenal. But sitting through the sitting through the hearing in the Supreme Court, it became obvious to us, or fairly obvious to us, that uh, the judges were were not very happy with the way the the laws were written and the way they were being handled in the in the state of Tennessee, and that our rights were being violated, and that our rights were being violated with no just cause. So they ask a lot of questions about that and ask a lot of questions about why, you know, it should be legal to um, make somebody have a residency requirement when the Constitution says that everybody should be able to go to any state and, and work and uh, have gainful employment without any kind of, you know, restrictions. And so we, you know, eventually won the Supreme Court case, which was great for us because we have invested every penny of our savings into this business. And picked ourselves up, sold our home, quit our jobs, moved across the country, and kind of felt like we had the rug yanked out from under us. Twice a week, um, vendors come in so that we can place our orders for our liquor, and every time something new comes in, they usually bring an open bottle and say, taste this and see if you like it. So it's really fun because we get to try every new product that comes out on the market, um, not to mention uh, over the holidays, some of those things are really nice. So these are gift ideas, and, and so we, I get to drink wine and, and some scotches and bourbons that you'd never think you'd get to. You get to try all these different things, and, and that's really fun. You know, honestly, if I'd had any idea how much fun this was going to be, I would have done this a really <laughs> long time ago. <laughs> Well, number one, everyone who comes in the liquor store is either in a good mood or in a bad mood, and they're in a good mood when they leave. If someone had told me what was going to happen to us when we first started doing this, I said I would have said, no, I don't ever want to do that. That would have been too hard. It's been very, very challenging. But I have to say that now that we're on the other side of it, I'm really glad we stuck it out and we did it. Um, I tell everybody the smartest decision I ever made in my whole entire life was when I decided to marry Doug. And I just feel so lucky that when we got here, I was with him when this happened because I knew that we could get through it, and we did. And I'm really, really glad the way it worked out, um, that justice was served, and I'm grateful for IJ. And my goodness, what a story, and what a lady. And by the way, Doug's not bad himself. And by the way, wouldn't every guy want to hear a woman say, uh, the best decision I ever made in my life was when I met my husband and married him and what a beautiful thing what a beautiful family and what a story I mean I just keep going back to that I lost your paperwork and by the way no big deal you just have to wait a month I lost your paperwork and in our big discussions about making government enterprises bigger we like to bring you those stories and these stories for a reason because my goodness the callousness of government enterprises can just be it can be heartbreaking, heartbreaking. And luckily, there were the Institute for Justice Lawyers, IJ.org, folks. They do all of their legal work pro bono, and that's free in Latin. Pro bono is free. And they're out there protecting property rights 
of Americans. You know, we love what the Innocence Project does, and they free people who weren't guilty. And again, that's screw-ups of the government, too. Uh, But my goodness, when the government takes your property, and that's what they did here, folks. This family had moved. This family had bought a house. They had entered into what they thought was a contract. Someone said, go do this. And so they did it. And all of a sudden, some bureaucrat changed his mind, and their life came crashing down. And so if you want to support a great organization in this country, the Institute for Justice is one to support. Go to IJ.org. That's IJ.org. In fact, one of their early founders was a board member of the nonprofit that runs this show. I call them the merry legal warriors of this country, protecting the most sacred right we have besides the right to free speech and to think and associate with whoever we want, and that is our property rights. That's what makes this country hum. And take away your property, and you can take away everything from somebody. Again, Institute for Justice is IJ.org. Doug and Mary Ketchum's story, a beautiful love story, a remarkable family. But my goodness, what a story about real justice in this country, here on Our American Stories.